Well, good morning again. Typically, there's a change of voice, and more than one person can tell you good morning. But it's been a little bit since I've been able to uh, be up here and talk with you. Um, first question I wanted to ask is, for, this is we're two weeks in to um, our reading through Genesis, and I hope that you are um, still encouraged and that you've not uh, that, that's what, and Mike and I talked about this a couple times, particularly on the podcast, that this whole one chapter a day thing is the most fantastic thing that I've done as far as my trying to read through the Bible, that I think a lot of, a lot of um, Bible reading plans that get you through in a year, I'll, all I'm trying to accomplish is to get through the thing, um, whereas we're spanning this across three full years I end up reading the chapter multiple times because I'm you know, reading it and I'm doing uh, you know, a summary of it. And it's going to take us a long time, but I am super encouraged by and super excited by the fact that I'm going to not only just, I've read the Bible, but I've really read the Bible, which I'm really excited about. And I hope that you are too. So have you ever made something? and realized afterwards that one single aspect of it was either flawed or damaged or in the wrong place, and there was absolutely no way to fix it except absolutely tearing it all apart and redoing it. Have you ever been there where it's just like that one thing is making this all not work? And I can't just change one thing and fix it like we've got to tear out the entire thing and do it again just before Madison and I got married we were remodeling the bathroom in my house and it was an absolute major overhaul a lot of you were involved uh, in that and uh, my father-in-law and one of Madison's uncles helped finish the project while we were out of town just after the wedding and here's the picture Uh, the floor of the bathroom I actually took a picture of this and I meant to send it to you and I didn't do it but We'll just have to paint this verbally. The floor of the bathroom is also the floor of the shower. And so there's no curb, there's no ledge or anything. And that works because there's a slope inside of the, uh, inside of the, uh, the shower that allows all of that to flow down. And the subfloor under that, and it works great, and there's this glass pane that sits there, and that blocks all the splatter. It looks great, works great. There's just a seamless floor that goes through the problem. But here's, here's the problem. When I installed that glass pane, I installed it two inches to the north, not on top of the slope, which is a problem. And at first, it wasn't that big of a deal, but over the last five years, which is crazy that it's been that long, water has made its way down and in around that glass pane and has slowly made it under the vinyl flooring and to the subfloor. You see where this is going now. It's not a lot of water each time that we shower, but five years is a long time for water to flow in the same place on plywood. And I crawled under the house the other day because that glass pane has started doing this number because it's starting to cut into the subfloor. Um, There's no way to patch it, and you can't support it. You can't just 
I was really hoping that the subfloor wasn't rotted to the point that I, I could just throw another, no, throw another 2x4 under there and it'll be fine. The subfloor is too rotted to do that. So the only option is to take everything out of the bathroom, rip up the floor, replace that, replace that piece of subfloor, replace the flooring, bring everything back in, and install that glass pane a little further over. Two inches. And it would have been on top of something that was meant for this slope. But I can't just, I've got to redo the entire thing, and I'm not super looking forward to it. I've known this for a long time that I needed to do this, and I still haven't done it. Because it's fine for now, but eventually, hope not, but eventually that could just... And while you're taking a shower, that would be a scary thing. Anyway, that redo project just kept coming to my mind as I was studying through Noah this week. And not just because it deals with water and destruction. Um, Though that was part of it. We're two weeks into our study of Genesis, and a lot has happened in that 14 chapters. And so I wanted to just kind of do a little bit of a recap with you. Because I think we've read the story of Noah enough times that we know we know about it. That was a bad dad joke. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it was there and I had to do it. Um, but we don't put it in context with the previous seven chapters. And I think that's, that's what we need, to, we need to do today. So in chapters one and two in creation, that's Um, what Mike talked to us about last week. We get this beautiful picture of God's creation and how God's handiwork is so phenomenal and that every aspect of his design is unmatched. And we have this beautiful garden. But in chapter 3, that creation falls into the temptation of not trusting God. And they did what was, and we'll find this phrase lots of times throughout Scripture, they did what was right in their own eyes. Take note of that phrase. It will be a reoccurring theme. They did what was right in their own eyes instead of listening to the words of the life giver. That decision was also, it took place with a tree, which is another thing that will be really important as we continue forward. Just want to pull out just handful of things like that. The book of Genesis is going to show us so many word pictures uh, to pull out. Creation is broken. The relationship between God and his creation is strained because of this choice that they have made. And they're forced to leave that beautiful place that God had made for them. In chapter 4, Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord. Abel's is accepted Cain's is not. And the Lord tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Another tree imagery, a door. It's a decision that he has to make here. It's a test to decide if he's going to do what's right in his own eyes or if he's going to follow God. Cain must turn from his sin and choose a better way, but he doesn't, and he kills his brother instead. And the ground becomes stained with Abel's blood. And Cain becomes a fugitive. He builds a city and has a lineage of some not very nice people. That's chapter 4. In chapter 5, we get that whole list of descendants. Um, And in the same way, 
I, I made note of this. In the same way that God made Adam in his own image, Scripture says that Adam fathered Seth in his own likeness, in his own image. And we're given that lineage all the way through Noah. Cain's line was chapter 4, Seth's line is chapter 5. And then we get to chapter 6, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And his response, God's response, is what brings us to where we are today. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created, from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. A couple of thoughts here. One, this is incredibly sad. Like I read that and it just... Because God poured himself into his creation. He fashioned man into his own image, placed them in a beautiful garden where they would want for nothing. He walked with that creation, and everything was good, which he says multiple times. It was good. This is good. Now that same creation has become so wicked that he's going to wipe them out entirely. Except for one man and his family. And I think that we read over that aspect pretty quickly sometimes too, mainly because we know what's going to happen. Man's evil, God saves Noah, saves all the animals. I know the story. But this is the destruction of not only all of humanity living, but all of the animals, all of the birds, the trees, and the plants. We're going back to square one where water is covering over the face of the deep and God's spirit once again is hovering over the waters. This is how Genesis starts where we're over the face of the deep and the spirit of God is hovering over. We are, we, it's, a, it's a decreation. Second thought on that is this feels really, really fast. Like we're only six chapters into the book, right? I think for me it's like four pages. And what we also need to realize because we're all through these genealogies 1,600 years has passed in four pages. Which is plenty of time for there to be some really, really wicked people. I mean, if you look back from 1,600 years from now, like, we, we just can't really wrap our heads around. Like, that's a long time. And yet so little as far as the, the text is concerned. Verse 5 says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And some people have wondered, is this, is this an exaggeration? Like, surely not every thought that he ever has is only evil continually. But considering God's response, I don't think it's too far off. Because their every thought was perpetually creating catastrophe. So, all that was created, whether plant or animal or human, besides Noah and his family, were blotted out. 
And chapter 7 says, Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him. Because, as we found out in chapter 6, Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And because of this, there's an opportunity for a redo. There's an offspring of Eve with an opportunity to crush the head of the serpent. I don't know if you remember the the promise that God gives in chapter 3, verse 15, to the serpent when he deceived Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that Hebrew word to, translated bruise is used to communicate either to bruise or to crush or to cover. But the intention is to show that in the end, there will be an end to the serpent. And it will be an offspring or a seed of Eve that will bring this out. And so all throughout Genesis, all throughout the, the Hebrew culture is looking for who will that be? This promise that was made in the garden, the serpent will be crushed. And so this is our first person who could potentially bring that restoration. This is an offspring of Eve that could potentially bring restoration to a world that has overwhelmingly chosen evil. He's the only righteous one. And his name, Noah, in Hebrew is the name for rest. He was... The hope would be that he would be the rescuer and the Messiah. Noah's father, even, his name, was, his name was Lamech. And when he named Noah, I don't know if you noticed this, in the end of that genealogy, Lamech says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. He will bring us comfort from our work and from this cursed land, cursed by blood, cursed by the wickedness of man. And that Hebrew word for cursed is arar. We needed a redo. And it grieved God to his heart. Let's, let's read it a little bit more in here in chapter 6. Just to let the text re- remind us of this story. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. So, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 30 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But 
I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your son's wife with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. So this is God's plan. It's a decreation and a recreation. It's a redo. God tells Noah that he will establish a covenant with him, which we'll find out later in chapters 8 and 9. But that phrase, Noah obeyed and did all that the Lord commanded him, is repeated over and over. And also notice, this is a detail that I've missed lots of times. He builds an ark from what? Wood. A tree. It seems pretty obvious. What else would he build it out of? But what have we learned about trees so far? They represent a decision. And most often that decision is whether or not we're going to trust God or do what's right in our own eyes. And doing what is right and good in one's own eyes always leads to death. We found this in Adam and Eve. Creation was perfect. And and the text, or chapter 2 rather, it says, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, which led to death. It was a delight to the eyes. It was something that I desired instead of something that God desired. In in chapter 4, Cain didn't honor the Lord and he killed his brother in, in anger. In chapter 4, there's a different Lamech that's a descendant of Cain who is just kind of a punk. Um, Cain has this curse that is put upon him, and he, he kills a man for striking him. And he says, if Cain's curse is this, let it be ten times that for me. He saw something that he wanted, and he took it. And then you get to chapter 6, where the very beginning of chapter 6, where we have the Nephilim, which gets a little weird. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and so they took as they chose. Which is right before God wipes out all of creation. Doing what is right in your own eyes always leads to death. But Noah doesn't follow this trend and do, and do what's right in his own eyes Over and over it says, he obeys God. He did all that the Lord commanded him. And salvation of humanity came from an ark made from a tree. That was the vehicle of their salvation. Evil is blotted out and creation is given a redo. Chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day, 
all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, which would have been absolutely terrifying. (laughs) All of the fountains of the great deep. And then something fell from the sky. And throughout Scripture, I did want to note this too. The number 40 always represents a period of trial or testing. That number comes up over and over. And every time, it's about a trial or a test. Here we have 40 days of rain. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they all fasted in the desert for how long? 40 days. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. And we'll find that the Hebrew culture just loves to, it's another way of communicating something. And it's this trial or a test. And it's always represented by 40. After 40 days, Noah sends forth a raven and a dove to see if the waters had subsided. We need to know, we need this test to see, is it it safe out there? Chapter 8. Once all of uh, the rain had, had subsided, we see here in the 600 year, 601st year rather, in the first month, first day of the month, the waters had dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the ark, the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So in the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wife with you, that have been cramped up in this boat for a full year. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. We heard that prior. Chapter 1. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his son's wife with him, and every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, and everything moves on the grounds, went out by families from the ark. A full year after water started falling from the sky, which was probably the first time that had ever happened. A lot of scholars tell us that. Coming out from the depths of the earth, and Noah and his family and the animals by families go out from the ark. The ark if you notice, lands on a mountain named Ararat. Which, as we mentioned before, the Hebrew for cursed was Arar. This is only one letter off from this word for cursed. The land is purified by water, purified from the curse that was on it because of the bloodshed and wickedness. And the new creation lands on a mountain with a very similar name. As we continue in chapter 8, now in verse 20. So, Noah builds an altar to the Lord. This is a response over and over by the patriarchs. He builds an altar with wood, presumably from the ark, and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He is here to meet with God, acting like a priest and offering animals on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground again because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He always will be. 
but neither will I strike down every living thing as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In chapter 9, it's a continuation of that covenant. This will be the sign of the covenant then that I make between me and with you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. This shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. God wipes the slate clean with the flood because man's intention was only evil continually and he promises to never do that again. Not because we're so much better now, but because if that was his response every time there was evil in the world, we wouldn't make it very far. And we wouldn't do what he commanded to be fruitful and multiply. A new way of bringing about justice was required. What blows me away about this section of scripture that we've been in is not only how evil the world has gotten or the immense measures that God took to have a right relationship with his creation, but also the crazy amount of trust that Noah showed. And I think that 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 fact is a large part of what Moses, who wrote this book, is trying to tell us. Here you have a man who is living amongst a people who are evil beyond belief. And he is still portrayed as righteous and blameless in his generation as his trust is unwavering. And so the Lord comes to him and says, I'm going to destroy absolutely everything except for you. So go build a boat. It's going to rain a lot. And and Noah says, it's going to what? The ridicule that he must have endured while building that ark would have been enough to make most of us quit halfway through. He is the only one following God. And now that crazy guy that follows God is now building a great big boat. Would have taken a very, very long time and a daily faith and trust in that promise that God gives him. And I wonder, how long would it have taken him to convince his wife to be okay with it? Or how long did it take for him to convince his sons, hey, you should help me with something? And how difficult may it have been for Noah's sons to convince their wives to get on the ark because their families didn't come? That's some crazy faith and an immense amount of trust. And yet, even with all of his faith, even with all of his obedience, Noah's not the Messiah. This, this hope that we had had that he would be the one that brought redemption and restoration to a cursed world. He's still flawed. He's still failed. And we read about this at the end of chapter 9 where Noah plants a vineyard, gets really drunk, and the events that unfold thereafter have terrible consequences on his lineage. And we won't go into that. But he curses his son, Ham, for his sin. And as we continue into chapter 10 with his genealogy, 
we find all kinds of evil places. Places like Egypt and Babel and Assyria and Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah, the Philistines, the Amorites, terrible people. And they all came from this lineage. And what does this tell us about humanity? The short answer is that we need Jesus. Big time. Because over and over, as we read through the Old Testament, we're going to find people who are faithfully following the Lord. But at some point or another, every one of them fails. There's an opportunity for an offspring of Eve to crush the head of the serpent, but they fail time and time again. Next week, we'll talk about Abram, who's another example, the father of faith who obeyed God and followed him so closely, but he's not the Messiah. He failed too. We'll talk about Moses a lot in the coming months. Sent to save God's people wasn't the Messiah. Humanity, though made in God's image, cannot save itself. It cannot. And this is what scripture is trying to tell us. We need Jesus daily. He is the only one who can truly save us from our fallen condition. And so we live our lives trying to have that faith, that trust to bring us closer to God. But have you ever experienced something in life where you're trying to actively trust God, but you just need some reassurance sometimes? It's not that you don't trust God, and and you know that he's with you, and that he will come through. You know that he will. But some days are just a little more difficult than others. Have you ever been there? You trust him most of the time. I've felt that a number of times with this pregnancy. Um, it's not that I doubt that there is a child growing inside of my wife. I've seen it multiple times with an ultrasound. And there are a lot of other signs that prove the reality of the fact that we are indeed going to have a child. But at the same time, I can't see it. And there are still so many unknowns. How will it come about? When? What kind of child will it be? At this point, I don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. How can you be so certain of something? And trust that God will take care of all of the details and still have a knot in your stomach some days. That leaves you just having a little bit of a hard time trusting. I know you've been there. And I think that part of it is the fact that nine months is a long time. And four weeks in between appointments to tell you that you're still okay feels like an eternity. And then you're okay after one for about a few days. And then you start to wonder again because we are so, so fragile. Weak from our inability to take God at his word. And we see this all over the place in scripture too. It's not just us. Abraham was told over and over and over that he would have a child. And he keeps responding with, I'm too old. How can this be? Moses is in the presence of a burning bush and the voice of God is speaking to him and says, Go set my people free. And he says, Lord, I can't speak. Send somebody else. He's right there. Gideon, 
And the book of Judges says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I'm going to put a fleece outside on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will do what you say you will do. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Um, one more time. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry and the ground be covered in dew. And so God did it. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. And we read that and we're like, Gideon, you're being ridiculous. <laughs> but we do the same thing all the time. And these were men of great faith. But it took them time to get there. How did they get to the point where they could say, Yes, Lord, as Noah did multiple times, I will do all that you have commanded? For one, they had to see God work multiple times before they could get it through their thick skulls that He would indeed follow through. But eventually, it was because of a daily trust and a daily faith. Today, I will trust God. Today, I will trust God saying yes to God today and the next day and the next day. Saying yes to God and saying no to what is good in your own eyes. Now listening to the voice like in the beginning that said, did God really say? Not giving in to the sin that is crouching at the door, giving us the decision to either give in to our selfish desires or to trust God and that he knows what he's doing. We're daily working toward building a relationship with a creator who cared enough about us to have a redo because he wants, he wants us so badly. Any good and healthy relationship is built on trust. So the question is, will you trust him today? And then tomorrow, ask yourself the same question, will I trust him today? Let's pray. God, we are a weak people that has trouble. Even though you remind us over and over in our daily lives that there is reason to trust you, we need reminded again and again. And you are so good to us in that you do. And we pray that you would give us the strength and resolve to continue to trust you, even when the world says you're crazy. These things we pray in Jesus' name.